Well, welcome everyone to this crisp Melbourne day, sitting together. To begin this talk, I'd like to just briefly go back to the life of the Buddha. He, uh, I'll shorten the story, but he, uh, he sits under the Bodhi tree for quite a long period of time, years and years and years, just doing exactly what we're doing today, just sitting like that, yeah. and just being present, practicing mindfulness. And he has an awakening experience. And one could say um, that in awakening, uh, he experiences the suchness of life. It's life just is what it is. In a way that um, a rose is just a rose is just a rose. Uh Just the way it is. And uh, that experience of suchness, of just seeing the momentariness of every life passing away, a rose just being a rose just being a rose, is in a way a realisation or an experience of the purposelessness of life or the aimlessness of life. Nature doesn't have any aim. It grows and it dies and so on, but it doesn't have an aim. It's just being what it is. So the Buddha experiences this very profoundly, you know, very comprehensive kind of way. And he says words to the effect, um, how spillly you've been seen. And the, the, the raft has been broken and you can't build the house anymore. It's a deconstruction um, metaphor. It's deconstructed the ego. The ego, this commentary on top of our life that judges things into good and bad and whether we're making progress and whether we're a good person and a solid citizen and meeting our goals, key performance indicators, all the rest. All of that drops away. You know? just like being a rose. And so there's a kind of purposelessness, aimlessness to that. And so he sits there for a while just enjoying the relief, you know, of not having an ego driving him along and experience just the wonder and the mystery of life. And he thinks, well, I could, I could stay here forever doing this because life is just pointless anyway. So I'll just, you know, keep on living on being a rose until I die. And he goes, well, I could do that, that'd be okay, but there's all these other people out here suffering because they've got this ego identity that they're attached to. And so out of compassion, he, he gives himself over 100% you know, in his life to try to bring this realisation to other human beings so they won't suffer. And that is the life of the Buddha. And um, if, you, if you sign up to being a Buddhist, whatever that is, but if you sign up to, to following the Buddha's way, he then gave you an impossible task, right? a pointless task. Because the mission statement of Buddhism, in a sense, is the, the great vows. And uh, this is my, my version of them, but... Um, um, the many beings are numberless. I vow to end their suffering. Greed, hatred and ignorance rise endlessly. 
I vow to abandon them. Dharmas are countless, I vow to wake to them. Buddha's way is beyond attainment, I vow to embody it fully. You closely examine the wording that it's purposely worded like that. Each of those four points is um, an impossible task. The many beings are numberless, but I vow to end their suffering. Greed, hatred, and ignorance rise endlessly. I vow to abandon them. So we're then set with an impossible task to do. His task was impossible. He never reached his goal because it's a goalless goal. And yet, we to put it all together, the realization that comes out of sitting practice is that is that we realize that just sitting is purposeless. It doesn't move towards anything, it doesn't retreat from anything. It's purposeless. And yet we go into life, we bring that realization into life with great purpose to try and liberate suffering in the world. That's the challenge of, of the Dharma. Um, in Zen books you see constant warnings about don't get stuck in emptiness. Mm-hmm. Well that resonates with don't just get stuck in realising the purposelessness of life. You've got to take it another step further and actually activate that realisation in the world. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just about you. Mm-hmm. If you realise the interconnectedness of everything then you would have a natural compassion for everyone to have this comprehension. So that is the Buddha's teaching and the Buddha's life. And Zen being a, um, a school of Buddhism, um, devoted particularly to the, the method of Zazen, we're aspiring to that same realisation and we all touch it to some degree or another. We all touch it to some degree or another. Don't think there's something that you're either awakened or you're not. We all have we all have little glimpses of this experience. Probably not to the same comprehension that the Buddha did, but we we touch the same experience of of suchness and that that sense of perfect imperfection that it is to just be a rose, being a rose. And so we emulate what he did, is that we do a lot of sitting meditation. Um, But to come back to understanding what sitting is a little bit more and to elaborate a little bit more on those comments I made at the beginning of our Sarsenkai about being non-judgmental in the way that you sit, and also being um, very accurate and and committed to self-honesty in the way that you sit as well. Uh, Let's look at them a little bit more closely. Um, To be non-judgmental, I think that in, in secular ways, that concept has been misunderstood uh, or partly understood, I should say. It it's kind of gets translated into don't don't be hard on yourself, right? Um, don't don't be guilty about what you experience, or don't feel embarrassed or shameful about what you experience. Well, that's good, 
But if you look at what non-judgmental means, it means that you're not good either. Right? It doesn't mean just that you're not bad. That's the way people usually translate it. It means you're not bad. Um, but it means if you tr really turn up to be non-judgmental, you're not good either. Because right? you, you, otherwise you're caught in a dualism. Do you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm bad one moment, I'm good the next. It's all comparison. Right? But does a rose judge whether it's a good rose or a bad rose? Rose is just a rose. Human being is just a human being. So as the Buddha sat there, he, he just drops all of that comparison and trying to escape from things and grasping at things, and he just comes back to being embodied. Right? And, and we can also experience that today, a you know, a taste of that today, that that same embodiment. So being non-judgmental non is, is, is actually not getting into the cognitive process or the thinking process that something's either good or bad. Mm -hmm. But if you're non-judgmental, um, then it, it leads to a, a, a kindness in the way that you actually relate to your experience um, and a compassion in the way that you relate to your experience, which is very important. Um, in the way that Mindfulness is actually um, used in a lot of secular programs and so on. Um, it, it emphasises this importance of being non-judgmental. But in my opinion, it doesn't emphasise the other side of it enough, which is the, the side of it which is being turn, turning up to be completely honest and open to your experience, whatever it is. And uh, because being non-judgmental and kind sells pretty well, do you know, but, but, but turning up to examine yourself um, very closely and really seeing your experience for what it is, it doesn't sell very well. But it is actually part of what the process is, is, what is, is too, of um, effective sasing. See, it's not one or the other. Not just being non-judgmental or being really honest with yourself. The two have to complement one another, like wisdom and compassion complement one another. And people can get into either or, it's either this or either that. They both go together and that makes the completion of the whole. But what I mean by self-honesty and non-judgmental non, non attitude makes honesty easier to experience. It's turning up and, and recognising and acknowledging all of all the many facets of our experience that we have as a human being. And it's many faceted. But if you do sitting meditation long enough, um, you'll uncover um, aspects of yourself which are um, rather challenging to look at or to examine, right? So you sit long enough, and um, I can just talk from my own experience, but you sit long enough and you realise that you actually experience resentment, right? holding on to anger. So if you're honest, you just acknowledge it. 
not, didn't fit in with my self-image of what I thought I was, but actually that's what's really happening. There's resentment here. And, you know, and I might sit further and I, and I, and I realise, gee, I'm actually small-minded, narrow-minded. You know, I'm not actually open to everyone. I actually judge other people a lot. You know, I don't like the idea, that I don't like that self-image, but actually that's what I'm doing, right? That's self-honesty. Um, and there's many different variations on that, but that's what we turn up to look at. And uh, if you look at some of the sutras and practices that we have, like for instance the um, Purification Sutra, which is the first one I believe you recited this morning, all the harm and suffering ever created by me since of old. Um, it, it's an invitation to self-honesty. It's an invitation to responsibility. It's not just an invitation to self-compassion, although that comes with it as well. Um, so, and then you take the precepts as well. Um, not praising yourself at the expense of others, not criticising the faults of others. They're all there as reminders for us to turn up to have this very unadorned, honest way of actually examining our experience, our behaviour in life. Because while what we may refer to as our Buddha nature is the natural me and the natural you, um, we are driven by this ego activity and the ego activity is um, basically a dynamic of grasp, grasping and aversion. Mm. Um, it's just something added on to our existence which doesn't need to be there. But it gets added on, it creates its own energy and its own habit energy and it leads to this separate, this sense of separateness, I mean mine, um, I'm the most important thing, I'm separate from everything in the world and I've got to push and pull myself around in the world to make sure that I survive better than everyone else does, which loses sight of the fact that just like nature, everything is dependent on everything else for its survival. Others don't survive and I don't survive. So we turn up to be committed to the survival of everything, not just me. But that's what the ego activity is. It's driven by that engine of grasping and aversion. And it is our practice to look into it when it arises. That's the self-honesty aspect of it. That second um, of the great vows, greed, hatred and ignorance rise endlessly. I vow to abandon them. It's, it's embracing that aspect of the practice. So if we do, if we do sazen with both of those guidelines, it can't help but eventually be um, a fulfilling kind of experience, whether you do it for 10 minutes or you do it for 10 days. Mm -hmm. But if it's one without the other, then it becomes unbalanced in some kind of way. And it's not as though, when I, when I talk about 
being self-honest, it doesn't mean that you sit there constantly fault-finding. That's not what I mean. It's just that this stuff arises. You know, sometimes you're just sitting there ne- neutrally, non-judgmentally, peacefully, and then it's like a, like a, a bad dream comes, you know, and you're caught up in some nightmare that you're reliving from years ago, or whatever, or some fantasy about what might happen. So, we just acknowledge that it's there, we're not trying to pretend that it's not there, and we're non-judgmental. There's a reason. And what arises with that in everyday life is a kind of um, a sense of humour and playfulness in the way that you practice. Like, for instance, I could be walking along the road or I'm driving and, um, and I, I could be quite mindful, but then I can notice sometimes as a commentary that I start to get judgmental about how mindless everyone else is <laughs> and how they need to practice mindfulness. Uh, and I can, I can be very mindful, but there's a kind of an, an annoyance in it. And then I catch it, you know, I catch myself doing that. And, and um, my wife and I have a joke between ourselves. Um, you know, when we, we get caught up in something like that, we, we, we go, it's not very zen, is it? Mm-hmm. Right? And so I, I, I catch myself, you know, being in that mindful but somewhat annoyed, aggressive mode. And I say to myself, that's not very zen. And it just drops away. You know, there's a kind of playfulness to it. But there's a willingness to acknowledge it and to a, a willingness to acknowledge this is not very wholesome activity either. There's a dropping away of it and then you just come back again into the present moment as it is. Now, all of our practice being purposeless, returning us to suchness, returning us to that experience that arose is just arose, is not about um, building up to something. It's not about achieving something. It's more about dropping something. See, what we may refer to as Buddha nature is just our natural, just our natural being. Just like nature is nature, it's just the natural man, the natural woman, the natural person. We've got all this social and psychological condition layered on top of it, which is the ego identity. So all we're really doing in, in Zen practice is recognising that extra layer on top, the head on top of the head, and cutting it off. Lopping it off, letting it go, drops away. So it's not building up into into being something good. It's just dropping all this conditioning on the top, so that we come back into being the natural person that we are. And uh, that's that's the nature of the practice. That's why in the Heart Sutra it says there's no attainment. You don't attain anything. Mm-hmm. Buddha didn't attain anything. Mm-hmm. If you do this practice long enough, what happens is that 
it's not so much that you're trying to be mindful all the time, um, that you're intending to be mindful all the time. That's what we do as a practice. But what you'll find if you do that for long enough is that natural mindfulness arises. You just are mindful. You just turn up to the present moment and the suchness of the present moment because, um, well, it's just the most sensible thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a folly to do otherwise. It's not actually very fulfilling or enjoyable to do otherwise. So you just naturally do it. And, and that emerges out of practice. You do that for more, more of the time during your life. So it's not as though you've got to be this um, hard-working intention to be like that all the time. Yes, it's good to, to be like that, that some of the time. But don't forget that if you do it, just natural mindfulness will arise. And the same occurs with the precepts. Um, the precepts are, are basically... Um, it's an application of mindfulness, the precepts. It's mindfulness of others and the way that we relate to others. And yes, we need to start off by intentionally being aware of how we apply that precept or don't apply it. But if we do it for long enough, that also a natural morality arises as well. We just want to naturally be kind and, and uh, wise in our dealings and non, non, non-egoistic in a way that we relate to other people because it's just the best way to be. Right? And it's the natural way to be. So this is very different to some of the ways that, of other religious teachings, you know, that you, you constantly kind of got to be on your, on your back all the time um, to be making sure you're a good person. That's not where Zen is coming from, at least, and not where Buddhism is coming from, as I understand it. We just get down below this, this layer of conditioning into something which is embodied um, and natural, and we live out that, that natural life. And that is the practice of Zen.